some of this, when you read the manuals, it suggests that an artillery officer in a trench would be within 1,000 metres of ground zero of a nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon, which I have to say is not what I really would have wanted to do. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Frank Baldwin was commissioned into the Royal Artillery in 1979 and served for 10 years, rising to the rank of Major. His first battlefield study he planned was in 1989 for the headquarters of the 4th Armoured Division, and since then he's been a guide or historian for over 200 war tours, battlefield studies and staff rides. In this episode, Frank reels off lots of great anecdotes as he takes us through the initial years of BAOR and the British Army's plans for the defence of West Germany. He talks about the evolution of doctrines on both the Soviet and NATO sides, including their nuclear warfighting techniques. Frank also describes working with Warsaw Pact observers of NATO military exercises and the British view of the effectiveness of other NATO armies, as well as the armies of the Warsaw Pact. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, I'm asking for you to support my work with a small monthly donation. Your donations enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available for free to others. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month because Ian's put together such a brilliant range of interviews. If you want high power, there's the son of Nikita Khrushchev, the cross-border romances, old-fashioned spy stories, and the bizarre world of East European football. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter, but your brain will be very, very thankful. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Frank Baldwin to our Cold War Conversation. Here's a couple of the disadvantages. The first is that none of the records that were kept, and there was detailed planning every year as to how we would fight the Russians if they came over the border. Or the, or the Warsaw Pact, but none of that's been kept. It was all thrown away. It was a rolling program, so there was only ever one copy of the general deployment cap plan kept. And at the end of the Cold War, all of that was thrown away, and so no one actually has written down where and how we plan to fight um, and re- retain that in case we might have to fight the Russians again, which has all become rather embarrassing. There is some high-level material. There are some old books, but they're they're really aimed at an intellectual level. Staff college uh, students and people studying masters in war studies, rather than people want to understand what was going to happen. This had been reconstructed based on what are my the notes I made from my military education. But if you think about it, the the um, whole of the Cold War evolved out of the results of the Second World War. Uh, the victors of the Second World War fell out. The, the Russians blockaded Berlin. They retained a substantial army on the eastern sector of Germany. The first person to really try and organize the land defenses of Europe against Russians was Field Marshal Montgomery. 
initially in the guise of the chairman of the Western European Union, and then as the first deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, initially to Eisenhower, and he served more or less about 10 years in, the, in that kind of role between 1948 and 1958. And so actually, part of Montgomery's legacy has been the development of and the thinking behind how NATO would operate. Uh, he came up in, with initially with the, the number of divisions it was supposed to require, which was far more than the Western European allies thought. The trigger for NATO, of course, is 1948. The allies rearm Germany and form the Federal German Republic, at least partially because they're looking for Germany to provide the manpower to defend itself, which on the eastern side give rise to the idea that the Federal German Republic is the direct descendant of the Third Reich, and the Warsaw Pact is a defensive alliance allegedly against that. So the Russian threat develops in several ways. Well, first of all, you've got the threat in the 1940s and 50s of the rolling Russian steamroller that rolled all the way from Stalingrad to Berlin. You then have, with the Russian development of the atomic bomb, you then have the whole period of mutual assured destruction and the concept that really nobody really understood what nuclear war would be like, apart from it was a complete deterrent against any kind of war. About the middle of the 1950s, the Russians start to think about how would you fight in a nuclear conflict. And this results in a whole change in Russian technology and also tactics. So the whole family of Soviet tactics and equipment, bearing in mind that in the First Second World War, a lot of their soldiers were simply foot soldiers. By 1960s, the Russians are going to put all of them inside armoured boxes with forced air breathing so that you could fire a nuclear weapon and then drive your motor rifle division or armoured division through it. And if you look at sort of how the Soviet doctrine works, some of the spatial parameters of it, their armies would consider uh, uh, the frontage of a front might be 200 to 300 kilometers. Perhaps a front is if, if equivalent, arguably, the inner German border length. And then in terms of depth, um, about 100 kilometers to 200 kilometers in depth, i.e. not far short of most of Germany, Western Germany, was the scope of what a front might attack. People looked at the uh, rightly thrust lines of the Warsaw Pact, and you've got a thrust line that leads uh, across the Elbe between Hamburg and Hanover. You've got another one, which is from south of Magdeburg, north of the uh, Hartz Mountains, and other ones through the Fulda Gap, uh, which would be the uh, Americans' concern. The British one was to really look at the, try and deal with the threat that would come across the inner German border from Braunschweig through Hanover and eastwards. I say the, the Russians initially were massed sort of conventional forces. They then went to nuclear in the 1960s, and their whole doctrine was based on the right idea you'd go nuclear and drive through it. But then there are all sorts of doubts come up, possibly triggered by the Cuban missile crisis, and the Russians themselves start thinking, well, there has to be an alternative between all-out war and um, conventional war and all-out nuclear war. And so you get the development of, of, a, of quite advanced uh, weapons in the 1970s, the Hind series of assault helicopters, the BMP, a lot of equipment that is well-suited to dealing with fighting conventional war. And that process continued, and the Soviets continued to develop, or the Russians really continued to develop through the 1980s, and it's still there. 
Now, the NATO commitment from this, initially, the idea was that the the land forces would be simply a tripwire. Once, if the Russians invaded, any British soldiers were there to be sure to be killed, and therefore we'd go nuclear, the Americans go nuclear, and um, that was going to deter everybody. By the mid-60s, and a degree of testing of things that were of lower level than all-out war, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, like the conflicts in Korea and Vietnam, you come up to the concept of flexible response. The idea that there may be some conventional fighting, and incidentally the other trigger for flexible response, is that the American's public would be thinking, well, yeah, we might trade if the Russians nuked Washington we nuke Moscow, that's an all-out war. But would we really trade Washington for, say, Hanover or London? And so you have the movement to something called flexible response, which implies that we will at least do a degree of fighting um, and at least try and slow the enemy down before we go nuclear. But the planning is still towards a nuclear war. And at this point, you have the high point of planning to actually fight with a nuclear tactical nuclear weapon. You're going to stop the enemy with tanks. That's largely because the Russians got lots of tanks and Westerns haven't got that many anti-tank weapons. And that really sort of, the only way to stop a tank is to fire a one kiloton or fractional kiloton missile and try and kill 50 of them when they're all squeezed up together. A real sledgehammer catch is a nut and we can look at that tactically later. The big thing that changed everybody's minds and gets everyone to think again, is the Yom Kippur War of October 1973. Because the Yom Kippur War pitted the late, some of the latest Russian equipment, T-62s, T-55s, against the Israelis, who were equipped with a few T-M60s, but mostly World War II vintage M48s, or shortly after World War II vintage M48s, and World War II vintage Super Shermans. So... Israelis could fight off people trained with Russian methods and Russian equipment at odds of seven to one against, which everybody suddenly gave a lot of European and American military thinkers the idea, well, hang on, maybe the Russians aren't that, aren't that good. You also had the really important observation that the Israelis, when they tried to attack the Egyptian bridgeheads over the Sinai, the Suez Canal, were beaten back by wire-guided anti-tank missiles. And so this gave a whole new idea that perhaps the aim of the game wasn't just to slow down the Russians and get to a point where we're going to press the nuclear buttons, where all the NATO countries are going to press the nuclear buttons, but actually we might yet win the war. And when I joined the army in 1979, I was staggered to hear what was effectively the tripwire that the knowledge that actually if we were going to fight in, in Germany, our role was to be sacrificial lambs. We were going to be the thin red line, which was a phrase often used in the Cold War. And um, once our thin red line was broken, um, everyone was going to go nuclear. And in fact, a lot of the NATO planning is based on the assumption that you've got to get diplomatic agreement from the 16 NATO nations to make to, to fully mobilize. And I'll talk a bit bit more about that in a minute. You're starting people to get to think, well, actually, maybe we can stop the Russians. There's also a clever piece of thinking about uh dealing with um using tactical nuclear weapons. Because the problem with tactical nuclear weapons is that tanks are actually incredibly hard to kill. I mean the people inside them may die of radiation poisoning, but you've got to actually get 
a nuclear missile within about half a mile of a tank. Um, and that caused a huge amount of collateral damage. So the Americans came up with a neutron bomb, which would be a way of minimizing the collateral damage while killing the people in tanks. Uh, the Russians countered this, or the Warsaw Pact countered this, with a very effective stop the neutron bomb campaign in the 1980s, where they call this a capitalist weapon that uh, would destroy the people but leave the property. And that started, that's, that was going on at the time when I was serving. Um, but one of the big revelations came in, in 1980 when for the first time uh, we had a briefing and the man who gave us that briefing was General Martin Farndale, who at that time was our divisional commander. He came round and the first time he actually talked sense and said, look, we can actually fight the Russians if the Warsaw Pact, and we're going to practice doing that. So instead of digging a hole and sitting in it and waiting to die as part of the thin red line, nope, we're going to actually try and see if we can win a war on a conventional basis. And that's a, a core of British military thinkers, Kenny, Ginge Bangnall, and Farndale, who were all involved in drawing up the planning that moved us from the, the idea of fighting a war where we'd have positional defence, digging in in slip trenches, and waiting for it to go nuclear. And we never really practiced the nuclear phase of tactics, but there were plans to sort of you blitz the Russians, you then come in with your your tanks and so on. But the nuclear tactics were, some of this, when you read the manuals, and I've got the manuals from the 1970s for this, it suggests that you would be within 1,000 metres. An artillery officer in a trench would be within 1,000 metres of ground zero of a nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon, which I have to say is not what I really would have wanted to do, um, or yeah. anybody really. No. So we move from the idea of a positional defence, where you dig in and you fight and prepare, prepare to die, to the idea of mobile defence, where you have obstacles. Now, in the mobile defence, in part of this, this is, comes in when you start to go nuclear, because, of course, you don't want to stand still and allow the enemy to nuke you. Um, but it's also the tactics, mobile defence and counterstrokes started to be talked about in the 1980s. And the idea of the counterstroke was would allow the Russians to penetrate. There was an awful lot of studying of what the Germans did in World War II. We met some very interesting German officers. The Americans actually interviewed a German army group commander and did a war game. Um, and there were war games involving allowing the Germans to fight the defence of the Fulda Gap. And, and they were really quite aggressive. The uh, General Balk of the uh, Army Group G and the 11th Panzer Division were very good. We did quite a bit of this idea of the counterstroke to the end. And they started thinking about the fighting, not just tactically, but operationally. I.e., How would you hit a Russian army with a group of, say, three or four divisions. And by the end of the 1980s, um, this was being practiced. So the British Army provided the third armoured division was a reserve armoured division. And typically scenarios in the big manoeuvres like Reforger involved tying up an armoured division of British or German or Dutch with um, a, a force from the Americans, the second armoured division from America, and air mobile forces. And the idea would be perhaps to lure the Russians in and then strike them from the side, a sort of tactics the Germans used quite effectively on the Russian front in the Second World War. And that was kind of the evolution of the tactics. 
And I think, though, how it would have worked is an interesting question. And if we want to look at where this was going to take place, and I have to say in, in the vaguest sense of where, each uh, nationality had a sector, a bit of a layer cake. So the Germans were in the north on the um, with the Elbe as their border. Then there was a Dutch corps, then another German corps, then there was a British corps, and then there was a Belgian corps, then another German corps, an American corps, two American corps, and then a German corps. So you've got a bit of a layer cake with a Bundeswehr in between them. Um, and the British sector was kind of between halfway through the Hartz Mountains up to the line that goes through Braunschweig and Hanover. If you'd like to see maps of the areas that Frank is talking about, there are links in the episode notes. And that area sector of terrain, if you look at it, you have very open ground north of the Hearts. There is a big feature, though, a curve feature called the Hainberg, and it curves around to Hildesheim and the area south of Hanover. And the idea would be that, effectively, the British tended to have sort of, you've got to decide two patches of ground you've got to work in, one of which was this flat North German plain, um, and the British studied quite extensively how the Germans defended the flat ground between Caen and Falaise in the Second World War. And, and this was known as the pin table. At this point, if you can, it might be worth you referring to the maps that appear in the episode notes. Then you had the, the features that the, um, there's a series of ridges and valleys between them and bowls, place the Einbeck Bowl. Um, all of these places were were areas where you've got an area of open ground um, with high ground with wooded heights around it, and the fighting would be different in those two patches of ground. And typically, and certainly by the 1989, uh, the first armoured division was charged with control holding the pin table. The fourth armoured division looked after the um, area south of that, south of Hildesheim, um, and covering the exits of the Hartz Mountains. Behind them, the 3rd Armoured Division was the Reserve Division, and the 2nd Infantry Division, um, the Army had played around with all sorts of derivations. I can talk about this forever if you want to. But they had come to the conclusion that the 2nd Infantry Division would be used to provide security on the Merriman River crossings behind the British lines. Now, there's a kind of an assumption, certainly amongst a lot of soldiers, who were who were recently in senior command that you, you, you we were going to fight them on the Vaser at the line of the Vaser. Nope, the Vaser was the rear of the British Corps position. The idea was to fight them really quite as close as possible to the inner German border. Why? Well, it's the Germans' country, um, and uh, the Germans felt that you really ought to fight as a big push to fight people as near as the border as possible, and so that's what we were going to do. So there was no real depth to what the, what was planned. Um, but there was, to provide some sort of depth, the German territorial reserves and the British 2nd Division in the British sector were deployed to cover so that you wouldn't have a swoop by a force of hind helicopters would seize the crossings or destroy the ones you relied on. So that was kind of thinking. And, and certainly by the end of it, the sorts of manoeuvres that were practised were that, the, that we'd try and hold these features like the Hainberg, um, which is that sort of knuckle um, that 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 a ground a sort of an L that comes up from the hearts hold that as vital ground and with the idea that the Russians might get across the first division sector and then frequently the sort of maneuvers would be to launch a, a flanking attack from the ridge south of Hildesheim 
Uh, and the last big exercises, um, the last big one I took part in was Exercise Iron Hammer, 1988. And that's exactly what they did. We we drove from uh, um, south to north, and this was projected as a, an, adv- an attack by the 3rd Armoured Division. Um, there were also plans for the Americans to do this stuff as well. Um, would all this have worked? The NATO plans were all predicated on the assumption that you would have at least 48 hours' notice after a build-up of rising tension. Now, this is an element of, of because it would take at least 48 hours for the different governments to go through the process to mobilise their armies because the strength of the um, NATO forces was really minimal in peacetime. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. But the idea the armies could be nearly doubled in size in wartime. The territorial army, the British territorial army at the time, required the Queen's Order Part 2 to be signed. And that would mean that all sorts of TA soldiers would scurry out and reservists would be called back. And those units which were in the field probably only had about half the number of people who they should have. The rest were either doing other things like training in for adventurous training or sports or something like that, or on courses. Um, and it was supposed to be you'd take 48 hours, and the NATO plans, if everything was all tied up, it would be um, an interesting call to see whether that would have worked. Maybe it would have held them off like the right, like the, um, the Israelis. Um, maybe not. But the other th- point about the Russians is that their big successes were in Maskarovka, um, deception. The Russians invaded the Czech Republic in 1968 as a complete surprise. Uh, their invasion of Afghanistan in an era of satellites took place with complete surprise. So the Russians had a real capability of achieving surprise. And I think one of the things that the West was over-reliant on was signals of intelligence. Um, if you read the Bricksmith accounts, the Bricksmith guys said there were plenty of times that the Russians maneuvered out of barracks and deployed with all their kit and all their tanks were bombed up, ready to go, without any signals intelligence knowing that. And that was part of the reason the Bricksmiths claimed that what they did. So maybe World War Three would have, the first you've known about it, was one Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve when the Russians came rumbling over the border and everybody was home for tea or off on home leave and um, half of Germany was up in arms um, on a sort of... But that, that, in a nutshell, is kind of the evolution of the tactics and strategy. Just adding to that, the nuclear side went out of fashion and, and it's um, the nuclear side went completely out of fashion in the later part of the 1980s, because it was realised that, that the main reason you thought you needed tactical nuclear weapons 
was to kill tanks. But with the invention of an awful lot of clever guided weapons and precision weapons of all sorts, you didn't need to do that anymore. Um, nuclear weapons were serious overkill for what you would have done with them. And, and for the effects of the battlefield effects, conventional weapons were approaching tactical nuclear weapons in terms of lethality. And arguably, the kind of weapons which are used by modern armies are, pro are far more lethal than low-yield tactical nu nuclear weapons and, and don't have the same political capital. So I think that's kind of, in a nutshell, the evolution of the plans. Do you have any questions, sir? I, I do. As you'd imagine, I, I have some questions. The, the end of what you were saying there was really interesting around the lethality of conventional uh, weapons towards the end of the 1980s and that belief that NATO could win a conventional war. There's an awful lot of unknowns, and, and those of us who are fed a diet, if you like, of Western propaganda, or or shall we say the marketing material, the, um, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, gave a warning of the military-industrial complex. Mm. And, and every year you'd come out with there'd be some publication that would come out emphasizing the Soviet threat and how many Russians there were and how much stuff they'd got. Um, and how good it was. And there was a question of, were we believing the marketing material of the Russians and whose interest was it up to big up the threat? Because when you got to the other side of it, um, a lot of their stuff didn't work. Um, a lot of their things were far less effective uh, and far more inefficient than, than we ever knew. So I think there was a degree of confidence, certainly um, in terms, well, certainly once we got to the idea that, yeah, we can... A fight and maneuver. Um, I think there was quite a high degree of confidence. It also depended on the units. It depended on the level of training they were. There were people that I worked with. I mean, in particular, I, I was the forward observation officer with the 7021st Battle Army Battle Group, uh, and instead we all studied German arm the German Army's Auftrags tactic, mission command. And the 7021st Lancers had got it. They had a lovely commanding officer called Reggie Perbrick. And Reggie Perbrick, um, he was sacked eventually for generally for insubordinate things, but I'll talk about that on another time. <laughs> um, but his, he got the idea. Um, the British Army had got uh, so a lot of re very standardized training. Uh, you trained in um, uh, Zoltau, Lunenberger Heath. You then went to Canada. Battle groups would train up in Canada, which in the, the uh, prairies around Suffield, you could fire guns in all directions, tanks and artillery in all directions. But there were kind of formats for things like uh, company group attacks, squadron attacks, battle group attacks. And, and the 1721st were incredibly good at it because they'd standardized it, they worked how to do it, and they all thought very fast. And even in code, you could hear, you could sit down there and you'd said, right, we're going to do a three Yankee 4-7, and that's just your map code or, your, or whatever code it was that we used at that point. Um, you could decode that pretty quick and say, oh, we're going right flanking. Uh, and, and the enemy's here and here and follow us. And these were really good. These fellows could do a squadron attack in about 20 minutes. That's fast going. Um, and a battle group attack, well, about 45 minutes. That's really quite fast going. World War II standards, where if there's a real enemy fighting back, whether they could do that, I don't know. But they were good. I contrast that with another battle group I work with, um, 
and that was the Irish Guards. Now, the Irish Guards, uh, the, the ethos of the Guards, Foot Guards, is on ceremonial parade and planning. And I, I remember hearing their commanding officer give some orders in the um, tactical trainer because um, they had some marvellous piece of training that you did to practice battle groups and brigades, which was a sort of a war game. Actually, all of this comes ultimately from Monty because the British Army developed during the Second World War, led largely by Montgomery, that if you want to train thoroughly, you have your individual training to so your soldiers now to shoot their rifles and drive their tanks and things like that. But then the officers need to pl- plan how they're going to fight. And he would talk about sand table exercises and skeleton exercises. So you would plan what you were going to do without messing any soldiers around. And the British Army did this after, continued this a lot of this stuff after the war. So the battle group trainer was centered based in the um, Senna Lager. There wasn't a computer involved. It was just all by manually. And you had a series of, given a series of exercise to practice what kind of defense you were going to do or what kind of battle you were going to fight. Uh, there's one also besides Senelaga. There was one in Bobbington and one in Catterick. So you, units in Britain could do the same stuff. Absolutely brilliant week out. You'd go out there, you'd pretend to fight the Russians, plan. You'd be given your set of orders of what the battle group or brigade was going to do. You'd then go and, as junior officers, the company commanders and the forward observation officers would trundle around and um, plan how they were going to fight the battle. So you'd go and cite your troops as you're defending someone. But the area would tip might be somewhere near Paderborn. And then you'd go back and say you briefed and worked out where the plans were. Now, in the headquarters centre, you had, if you like, what would you call a big games room? Um, it was a big map. Uh, each tile was a grid square. And the whole table was laid out, a bit like if you've ever seen the Battle of Britain film, you've got people moving markers around it. And all of the lower controllers, I, all the people who had gone out and sighted their troops, sat around the edges of this. And at one end of it, you'd also have the red, uh, Orange Forces controller would do the Soviets. Um, but the actual headquarters under test, uh, all being exercised, were in a slightly different complex, which was set out uh, to be the same layout as a battalion headquarters or a brigade headquarters. So you had a plan cell for a brigade, you'd have the plan cell with the brigade commander um, and the brigade major, you'd have the battery command, the um, commanding officer of the artillery regiment next to him, the engineers, the int cell, the RAF. And, and so those people, though, would be communicating by they were actually internal communications, but they duplicated the radio communications they would have with their subordinates. Now, their subordinates were all sitting around this big table, and we then fought the battle. And you reported what you'd see, and there would be a kind of umpiring, but bearing in mind this is a controlled enemy, the enemy would do their plans. And, and to a certain extent, you were under test as the company commanders and artillery observers, because actually, if you planned your defences sensibly, but the, the little arrows that came in, you then report what you saw. And But the people back in the headquarters, for them, the war was all happening through, and it was a paper war, but they were reacting, and that went on for about a day, and they would practice them in all of the various bits they had to do. So that's your son of absolutely brilliant. You went to spend somewhere else, drove around the countryside, and, of course, you met up in pubs to... Um, plan your operations and discuss this with everybody else but this is the Senegalaga stuff um, but it, when we practiced one of these we practiced a counterstroke 
and it was glorious as a uh, subunit as the to hear the orders come out. We're now going to do a counterstroke in sixteen phases, and this is an armoured operation. You, it's just the wrong tempo to do that sort of stuff. But that was where we came back for that. So that stuff that's all been replaced by computers. Um, and I don't know whether they still go out and reconnoiter the countryside around Bobbington, but if you go out and see a bunch of people in Land Rovers drinking and in uniform drinking beer somewhere near Spetersbury or around that area, they might still be doing it. But they go back into a shed and pretend to do it on on uh, on a computers instead. Um, but that's the the training stuff made a great deal, and the mentality of people made a big deal. I think on balance. I don't know how, how confident we would be. Um, I'll tell you about the end of this, though, because arguably a lot of the big exercise, of course, took place with a level of farce because uh, we could exercise over the German land because we won the war, effectively. And I, my commanding officer, my brigade commander, told me when I planned an exercise and I gave him two options and said, well, the Germans really don't want to do this one here because of the damage to the environment. It's near close to water, pollution, contamination. And the last time that anybody did excellent, it's got a huge amount of damage. And his reply to me was, who won the war? And we did it. But of course, there's a degree of unreality because you can't simply stop a whole chunk of Germany working. So there was a, a budget for these things and you might have to go non-tactical. So instead of your tanks roaring across the countryside, they would have to go on the roads with four-way flashes and all this sort of stuff going. Eventually, by the end of the Cold War, you had a thing called CSCE, the um, Stockholm Agreement. And the idea was in order to prevent the one side or the other delivering a surprise attack, you allowed, you invited observers from each side to, to watch the other. So if we were going to organise an exercise, we would invite the Russians along and anybody else from the Warsaw Pact who wanted them to come along. Now, the original concept was, you know, okay, well, if, if someone Russian wants to spend their um, night in a slit trench next to me, that's fine. He can share my, well, as long as he brings his own composite ration, that's fine. But it didn't quite work like that. What you actually had was a marvellous invention um, which, of course, because you might ask soldiers to go and live in slip trenches and be uncomfortable, but you can't ask diplomats to do that sort of thing. So you ended up with a five-star hotel and the Iron Hammer exercise in 1988. I was on one of these as the escort. And it's all based in a five-star hotel. It's the nearest thing I've ever experienced in my time in the military to an all-expenses-paid sales conference, um, an international convention, basically, and there were observers from every Warsaw Pact nation, every NATO nation, and the neutrals. And I found myself as the um, escort. And they all had to have escorts. You had to have a Brit assigned to each one of theirs. So I was an escort to the Austrians, who were more interested in the bar than anything else. Uh, a good friend of mine and um, uh, my uh, boss at the time, uh, was the escort to the Hungarians. And the Hungarian colonel, he got on quite well with because they both spoke good German. Uh, the Hungarian also spoke very good English because he'd worked in England, and you can guess what he was doing there. Um, and it was interesting because you had a busload. There were two busloads of a mixture of Warsaw Pact people all commenting, friends and foes and neutrals, all chuntering and commenting on what they could see about the poor old British army. And there was a lovely man who was the uh, uh, 
major general training for Hungary. So here's a Warsaw Pact Hungarian major general. He's the head of their training. And he can, his jo- he he made all sorts of pointed questions, such as sticking his head round an FV four three two and looking back at tired soldiers in the back of it, and asking questions such as exactly what training value are these soldiers getting from this exercise, which is a very pointed question. Similarly, also when the tanks that were doing some advance. It was five o'clock in the afternoon, close to Hanover, and instead of being tactically across there, there, there are big lights flashing and they're driving around by the roads. What is the point of this exercise? What exactly are you achieving by doing all this? Um, and actually, it, it may have been a Warsaw Pact guy, but these were questions which hit, hit home to a fair number of us. Um, the other thing which I was impressed with, uh, the Hungarian, who was uh, obviously a, had been a spy, knew London quite well, um, and we gave a, there was at one point we did a visit presentation of all the, the the British equipment, and there was a soldier next to them explaining them what there was. And this fellow said to us, "You know, the numbers here. We know this stuff is nonsense." So the Hungarian said, "You know, you say your min- minimum range of the Milan anti tank missile is fifty meters. That's rubbish. It's about five hundred meters." Um, and 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 he knew this stuff, and he'd complain. He said, "The warrior, the warrior APC. It's like a block of flats." And my friend um, said to him, well, is there anything which impresses you about the British Army? And he said, yes, there is. And the Hungarian pointed to a lance corporal in the Royal Engineers. And there's a lance corporal in the Royal Engineers talking about his equipment, the role of the Royal Engineers, what they did, what they couldn't do, knowledgeably, to about 50 stars around him. So here was uh, uh, no no PR man, no officer overseeing him, that the British Army had the confidence to allow its junior soldiers to speak for themselves and that they were knowledgeable, experienced soldiers, which you wouldn't have found necessarily in the Warsaw Pact forces. That was the bits, if you like, that came to me as strengths and weaknesses stuff. That whole exchange of um, officers from, from the Warsaw Pact, as you say, came very late on in... Uh, the Cold War in the, in in the late eighties, but yeah. I mean the Hungarians at that point were sort of well on the road to some sort of democracy. What, what did you have much contact with the East Germans as to what? Oh uh, well, that, now I was going to mention the other feature. Of this is I, I think that this is more than of a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that that CSCA came in and the exchanges came in. I I have a suspicion, and here's my claim to to think that that I mean. Uh, was it Reagan claimed that they were out producing the Russians in in tanks and aeroplanes that changed and made the Russians fold in the Cold War? Here's my anecdote that says that it isn't. We had, there were two East Germans on our bit, and that was interesting because the East Germans were not supposed to have any contacts with the West Germans at all, and they spent a lot of time talking to their opposite numbers in the Bundeswehr. And there were two Germans. There was one who was an older one, and there was a younger one. And the younger one was only a colonel. Um, the older one, I think, was a general. But the younger one was probably the party man. This young man, I say young because I'm now 60 odd, but he would have been older than me then, but about, probably about 40, I guess. This 40 odd year old colonel, young colonel, 30 to 40 colonel, every time we were driving around, of course, they're driving around West Germany. And every time we passed a garage with selling a car dealership selling Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, 
Audi. This chap's eyes were out on stalks. Like a teenager through the Ten Mark Alley in Amsterdam. You know, this is this was this was car porn to this guy. They could see, they knew they'd lost. Um, I remember my friend telling me the Hungarian referred to the farmers as peasants, or translated them as bowen or the peasant term of bowen. But they obviously weren't peasants because peasants don't drive Mercedes cars. And these people from the East, the West would have no chance of getting that kind of luxury. Um, I mean, it's quite well portrayed in, uh, I don't know, um, I'm sure you've covered this at some point, um, Deutschland, 84, Deutschland 83. Yeah. Um, that whole experience of the lad comes out and there's a Western supermarket well, for these Germans, they were being taken around. So I would suggest that actually one of the big contributing factors was it wasn't the investment, the military investment that ended the Cold War. It was the fact that their their economic system had failed to produce them individually, personally, with the kind of lifestyles that they would like to have lived. Even under the communist system, you, you didn't live that well. Even under the party system as a, as a, as a favoured guy, you, you, you weren't going to get Mercedes and Porsche. Uh, and so I think there's there is something to be said for that that our maybe those exercises sub, we subverted <laughs> all these fellows who came across, but that was just my thought with it. To come face to face with effectively your adversaries must have been quite a well, not just an interesting experience, but actually your the first, or one of the first times you'd actually seen seen them, you know, flesh and blood. I guess, unless you'd been to Berlin or somewhere like that. Yeah, well, there, there were, we did have some carrier, but I'm, personally, and maybe this is another story for you, but this is another time. As a young boy, or as a, correction, as a teenager, uh, I actually spent a holiday in East Germany and had some contact with the um, DDR military there. And later, we obviously had contact after the Cold War. Um, and in fact, I went on holiday um with my wife to go and we stayed with a, a Czech family, a, a, a pen friend of a pen friend, pen friend of one of my wife's friends who happened to be married to a, a Czech army officer. So I spent uh, 1990, the summer of 1990 um, in a Czech officer's quarter. And he was de- distinctly worried because I'd just retired at that point. We, the things we got about from the Russians, there were several things we did find about the Russians. First of all, is that a lot of our courses, um, training courses were, um, open to people who also took Russian training courses. I did a, a company commander's course or the all arms tactics course in 1984. Um, and one of the officers on that was a, was a wonderful um, Indian gentleman called VJ. And VJ was a commander of a battalion of T-72 tanks. He was attending the British Army t- Tactics course, but had been to Moscow to attend um, the training by the Russians. So VJ, you know, what are we doing? Well, well, how would the Russians do this? He knew the, the, those answers. So we had had kind of that that response. The other people who you'd obviously would have had that contact are the people from Bricksmith. Some of those worked then came out, and I knew a couple of people who had worked in Bricksmith, and they t- but they did meet the Russians, you know, as as adversaries. Sadly, the man who's dead, David Baines, was a gunner. He he actually was a D Day veteran, and landed on D Day or D plus one as a lieutenant. He was the mission commander of Bricksmith in um, 
the early 70s. He's sadly died last year, but he, he was quite... Now, whether he was taken in by them, but I asked him for his impressions of uh, the Russians, and he said that the Russians... He didn't think the Russians wanted to fight us. The people he met were very professional. They were very patriotic. He got on very well with his Russian, his Russian minder, either the, the fellow who looked after the Brexmiths, because this fellow's wife was a sniper, had fight, fought in Stalingrad or whatever. No, we didn't have, I mean, it really was a bit of a fake sort of stuff, wasn't it? You know, we we didn't know that much. And it's also through, um, we obviously also read, because the Russians also produced a lot of training material for their English language um, users of their equipment and methods. So, you know, well, there was a Russian magazine, which was the Russian Army magazine. But it was a sort of a journal about how you did things, and it was examples of how you fought with teeth. BMPs and things like that, and examples from the Great Patriotic War. And one of the subscribers was G2 in 1BR Corps, Bielefeld, Tofrik Balix, Bielefeld. You know, so they, 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 the Russians actually ha- were happy for them, ha- whether they were happy or just didn't notice. Um, the British Army subscribed to these publications as well. And, and so, for example, we studied a lot of the Russian stuff, but a lot of the stuff didn't really add up. Because when you look to the tactics, and, and since leaving the Army, I've studied a lot more about military history and tactics and so on. And the stuff that we did never really added up because a lot of the Russian material is all based on moving. Richard Simpkin was a um, British Army officer who wrote some really thoughtful books on armoured warfare. He wrote a book on tank warfare, anti-tank warfare, um, the red red armour, and a whole load of stuff, but he really got into the minds of how the Soviets thought. And one of his comments was that the British and Americans move between fights and the Russians, and to a certain extent the Germans, fight between moves. And so one of the things that I was always thinking about, the um, NATO concept for fighting a battle, was going to start with the assumption that we're going to have a fight on the main defensive uh, positions but the russians assumption was we're going to actually have an encounter battle which implies that the last thing they really wanted to start out with was an assault on a defortified position um which makes me think that if the russians were going to come they would never have come after a period of rising tension after we were going to do all this stuff so you look at the sort of techniques of this the russians was always based around the encounter battle, and we were told to expect this and that and the other, which isn't quite how they were fight, going to fight if they actually had to do a um, an assault on a defensive position. One of the things you spoke about was effectiveness of of the Red Army. What what was the British Army's view of the effectiveness of the other Warsaw Pact allies? Well, the British weren't going to face the Poles. The, there was never a consideration, and we never really planned against or expected to fight the Poles, the Czechs, or the Hungarians. The Poles were seen as questionable because around that time, of course, you had Lechwensa, the Soviet occupation of um, of Poland, and there was a takeover of Poland around that time as well. So the question was, how much fight were the Poles having? I suspect any contact with the East Germans was that these were Germans, um, and could be expected to be good soldiers. And also, I think the DDR did quite a good job of selling their idea of their country and pride that they were 
um, I mentioned I went to East Germany in the 1970s. Um, I was 16 or 17, and um, we were allowed in. The reason we were allowed in, my father was a teacher. One of his students was uh, the daughter of, or two of his students were the daughters of a um, man who had been a German prisoner of war, uh, and it, but he'd never been back because his home was near Dresden. And uh, But in the little detente of 1971 between Nixon and Brezhnev, there was a gap opened and they used it uh, to invite a party from my father's school, which I went along with, with these two girls. They met their granny for the first time. They met a granny and all their aunts and uncles, um, who, of course, had been brought up in East Germany. We met them and obviously had some interesting conversations. But these people were proud to be East Germans. They looked at the West and looked down on them. Um, looked down on those effete, um, west and soft, their soldiers are in hairnets, and there was a degree of pride that they were, not Prussian because they were Saxon, but there was a degree of pride in what they'd done. And I think that comes out that if there was any of the armies that would have done what they said they were going to do, I suspect the NVA would have done it. They probably would have been better because I think the educationally they were better than the Russians, and the Russians had huge problems of integration, uh, racial problems with the Asiatic, the different populations they've got. Um, and there was an awful lot of stuff about brothers in arms, and the, the last of the Russians were with brother in arms than anybody. Um, I think the question is also about NATO uh, is, is not just the Warsaw Pact. There was a view of what did we think about our allies. Um, we thought the Germans were fairly good. I worked with the Germans. I was a forward observer attached to German Panzer Company, for, and this is why I know the Germans also um, fight between moves. And the Germans were very good. They had far fewer officers in the British Army, um, but they were good. And, and one of the pieces about German thinking, German thinking, on the one hand, the Germans are all soft and sort of very more soft and liberal than the, anybody else. But on the other hand, when you ask them why did they have a design of their reconnaissance vehicles with big wheels, big, large, round wheels, where we'd gone for tracks, which is good for tactical reconnaissance. The answer I got from a German was, there are no roads in Poland. So it wasn't automatic that the Bundeswehr was automatically thinking of purely being on the defensive. And there could indeed, <laughs> one outcome of the cold, of a hot Cold War might have been the, uh, the liberation of East Germany by the West Germans, um, <laughs> or whatever. The Belgians were seen as a bit of a laughing stock, although their best soldiers were seen as good. The Dutch were seen as unreliable. They were unionized. They could have long hair. and But that's typical. Some of that's just typical British xenophobia. Uh, we did one big exercise where we had a big NATO. It was a NATO exercise, North Ag exercise, and we were all ensconced in some... Um, war game at Rammstein, where there's a big American computer, uh, computerized war game. And the Belgians were doing far, far better than the British, despite manifest British cheating. Um, the, the Belgians were holding off the Russians and we weren't. The French weren't really seen as allies. We didn't do much, much with them because they weren't integrated in the NATO structure. But I think there's, there was also an element of the British plans all depended on mobilizing the territorial army but culturally the british army was divided into stabs and arabs stabs are stupid tear bastards and arabs are a regular army bastard and uh, you know looking back on it 
there was a lot of prejudice about the the, um, the, the inadequacies of the TA. I mean, I, I became a reservist with the Honourable Artillery Company, which actually could not do its um, assigned duties, which was to be stay behind and dug in behind enemy lines somewhere in the hearts and um, popping out to go and recall what they saw of the Russians. Uh, and there, the, the, the Honourable Artillery Company recruits in the City of London. It's it's, it's it, Technically, it kind of recruits everybody as a gentleman. So there's and everybody has to go through selection there, um, special force selection. Uh, I didn't. I was a, a home guardsman there. Um, but that couldn't do that, and so the regular army established its own special force, um, special OP unit, 473 battery, which then did that. But the arm, you know, that that was a weakness of the British. Um, the other big weaknesses, what were the British weaknesses? We were not actually, when you look at it, as I say, all our plans depended on um, the TA, but the integration of the TA wasn't always good it would have been i'm sure because in the end of the day you'd have to make it work and it had worked in two world wars so it might have worked then if given time to sort itself out the other thing about the nato stuff is everything was in the shop window uh and that was all proven in 1990 the year at the after the end of the cold war because in order to get a small armoured brigade, armoured division, i.e. a two-brigade division in Kuwait, they had to rob all of the armoured divisions in Germany for their engine packs to keep the tanks on the road. So, the, you know, it wouldn't have gone on for very long, and we didn't have that many um, anti-tank missiles or whatever to keep going. So... I don't know, you know, that's a, that was probably another weakness. But the strength was, I'd come back to the strength of Hungarian recognised. Our soldiers were motivated. Oh, the other thing I think was also, we, we kind of give a um, credence to this. I mean, post the second, post the uh, Cold War, the British Army has been heavily engaged. And I left because, oh, there's nothing much going on after the Cold War sort of stuff and went to become a civilian. But it's actually been rather busy, what with the Gulf War, then Bosnia, Kosovo, um, and then from 9-11 onwards, uh, the British Army has been almost in continuously on operations. Uh, but at that time, one thing which was there was a big sense of unreality about the Cold War. If you want to do fighting soldiery, you went to Northern Ireland or you did uh, a tour of duty in Oman. If you talk to soldiers about would they fight and what was it, the big words were, you know, come the day, I'm on the first, I'm, I'm heading down to Zeebrugge. And there wasn't really, if you like, what, what Montgomery would have called the fight in the man. You know, there wasn't, um, and I don't know to what extent, there was never, we, the, the, in the 1990s, the British Army came up with doctrine for the first time, and they seriously looked at things like, what do we want to expect our soldiers to do, part of the military covenant. And so what we never did was the things which every recruit does now, and I think, the the um, results of this are shown in the quality of man and women power and their attitudes to things which are really terrible that have happened to them is the modern British Army works on the core principles. The core values of the British Army are uh, sea drills, courage, discipline, integrity, selfless commitment, loyalty, self-sacrifice. Uh, and those are things which you expect as a soldier to do. And the, the training of soldiers now um, recruits 
go and do that. And I, I spent a lot of time as one of the um, historian guides um, working with the um, soldiers from the recruit training centres. And the quality, I think, of their in, um, mental thinking of the thinking soldiers now is they ha- this is what they've signed up to do. They know it. Whereas I think I'm not sure on the uncertain circumstances of World War Three, how many people would quite have rallied the fl- to the flag as they think. I mean, now, you know, you talk to any of so these soldiers who've had, for example, terrible injuries, and, and the, the, the same, you know, the, you talk, the, the families will say he was doing the job he wanted to do. Uh, or if you talk to themselves, they come back to you in the words of this inner leadership, the inner thought, the core values. That was not there in the 1980s. And one doesn't really know how many people under the supreme threat of this is the end of the world would actually have turned around and turned up for the colours. I'm sure actually appeals to the regiment, appeals to the battery might have worked, but many of these people might have been, I uh, would have had to react really quite quickly and would have been on holiday or um, skiing or somewhere else and would have had all sorts of opportunities to slip away. And I don't know really, I mean, I, we'd like to think, of course, we're all British soldiers and we'd all turn up, but did was there the commitment to fight and die for NATO? I don't know. The other side of the uh, all the uh, Cold War planning is, uh, we had about 50-odd thousand soldiers in in um, Europe. We also had 30-odd thousand civilian dependents. So at the same time as you're moving all the soldiers in one direction, their families have got to be evacuated in the other. And something's got to be done with their pets. And all of the stuff that you might associate with the beginning of World War Two has to happen to that community the size of a city, a, a fairly large town. You mentioned earlier that the British Army needed 48 hours to effectively get the territorial units in with the regular units. Was that the same period of time for the civilian evacuation? I kind of guess something like that. That was there were plans to do that, but the whole idea was within a period, or the idea might be in a period of rising tension. Now, um, I interviewed a few years ago some gunners who'd served in uh, a tactical nuclear missile regiment, and they told me there were that one time which really worried them was they were actually deployed at the time of the. It's either the invasion of Czechoslovakia or the Yom Kippur War, and the families were evacuated. And that's the moment these fellows, who were due to fire missiles, I think Lance, no, it wasn't Lance at that time, corporal missiles, um, thought, gosh, this is it. Wow. One interesting thing is that the White Coach Fleet, which was the third or fourth line transport, which was used for the moving civilians and school kids around and things like that. It was actually operated by the last vestige of the Wehrmacht. These are called the MCTG, Mobile Civilian Transport Groups. Um, The one near Hereford was 632 MCTG, and it had been the transport column of a German parachute corps at the end of the war. And the reason it existed was because at the end of the war, the British found themselves having to supply hundreds of thousands of German prisoners uh, in camps. And the easy way of doing that 
was to retain and mobilize, retain in mobilization, the German transport, uh, German army transports. And these were then taken over and became work with the British Army. So a friend of mine commanded 632 MCGG, and he said, this is in the 1980s, he said, um, we, it was common for the staff supervisors. The British ran these things like sort of any native unit. You had a British commander and quartermaster, and the rest of them was all run by locals. Um, and they, the, um, the, the superintendents, who were the officers and the staff superintendents, staff superintendents, officers, and the uh, non commissioned officers in this organization, the conversation along the lines of, well, I haven't seen you since Kursk. And it genuinely, its stamline traced itself back to the Wehrmacht. And another bizarre organization called the Mobile, I think it Mobile Service Organization, Military Service Organization, or the MSOs or Mojos. These were recruited from Polish displaced personnel. And um, the best of these were, were drove the tank transporters. And they all wore a um, quasi military uniform. They all wore coveralls with Polish eagles on. I spoke to the man in command of these when they came to take our guns away in 1983 to move them onto something. Well, you know, how how old are you? And about seventy odd. And what are you? What you know? What are you doing? Why the Polish eagles? We are the Polish Armored Division, the last remnants. And this guy had commanded a tank in World War Two, and in 1983 was. Um, uh, leading groups of British tank transporters, so there was a carryover there. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous patrons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a patron by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate and you can also join our facebook group where listeners just like you continue the cold war conversation thanks very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.